This morning's sermon will be from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Thank you, Walter. This is one of those texts I think we roll by... And I think we, we miss its power and implications for our lives. This, I think, is probably one of those theme verses, if not the theme verse of the book of Philippians. Um, and, and perhaps there would be some debate on that. But he is at least starting in this passage to lay out for us an argument that runs all the way through the end of chapter 2. This is one singular sentence. All that Walter read just a moment ago is one sentence in Greek. No good composition teacher likes that sentence. It's, it's poorly done in English, but the apostle is known for writing long sentences. And, and the reason I say that is not so we can criticize his grammar. It's so that we might understand he's thinking of this thing as an important, weighty thing, and he can't stop talking about it. In fact, this is the very first command in the whole letter. The apostle has gotten through introductory matters. He's introduced to them his prayer and concern for them. He's reported about his own life and how he's responded to the suffering and the imprisonment that he's experiencing and how God is advancing his work through him. And now he finally turns his attention to them. And the very first words out of his mouth are in verse 27 for us as he urges this city in Philippi, this church, as they gather together to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says that he wants them to do this. If we're just kind of quickly outlining this whole sentence and then we want to come back and really focus our attention this morning on that initial phrase and, and let it saturate our conscience and our hearts that we might be shaped by its truth. He says, I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that when I hear this report, whether I show up in person or hear in my absence this report, he will know that they're standing firm together in the, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that they're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that they're not frightened by their opponents as they're suffering under persecution. So he has three, three concerns that he would see in response to, to the situation that they find themselves in. And then in, if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, he begins explaining what that looks like. Being together in sweet unity, 
serving and loving one another, thinking of others as more important than themselves. And then in chapter 5, he begins this, um, some people think it's a psalm or a poem, excuse me, a song or a poem about Jesus Christ, and he holds Jesus Christ as our example for how we should engage life and live well. And then he'll continue on in the following verses on the same theme as he follows through the trajectory of this initial command. So I'm just going to start by introducing it this way. The command. What is the command? What exactly does he tell us to do? He says in, in that first line of verse 27, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He starts off actually with this one little word where he's saying, only do this, right? He says, only, that's not like, don't do anything else. The point is, this thing has, has got to capture your attention. This thing, do this thing. Get this right. Do this. Okay, so what's this, Paul? He says, live like a citizen. That is, they are to discharge their duties as though a citizen. That's, that's literally what the command means. Unfortunately, it's really hard to say that. Like, like it just doesn't come out in English very easily. So almost all of the translation, translations will say something like this. Let your manner of life or let your life be worthy or let it be fitting. The unfortunate thing is they miss that implication of citizenship. The New International Reader's Version translates it this way. Only live like a citizen of heaven. They're actually putting words in the Greek to help you see what he's trying to say there. Live like a citizen of heaven is the command. Do this one thing. Command force. Be living like a citizen. Now, again, I think we miss the implications of this, partly because we're just culturally so different than Paul. So I want to take you back to Acts chapter 16. I think at least we see a glimpse of this in Acts 16. You, you may be aware, because uh, as a well-educated group of people, um, you are familiar with the fact that citizenship was not part of being in the Roman Empire. In other words... If you're in our country and you're born in our country, generally speaking, you're a citizen. I mean, there's some political debate about people who are here without going through the proper governmental paperwork, and there's constantly talk, and there have been frequent um, actions by politicians to grant them citizenship. We just give citizenship away. It's expected. I would assume that 99 out of 100 people in this room are probably citizens, maybe not quite that many, but a lot of people. It's just kind of normal. We're citizens. People are born that way. We just are. And you can naturalize. My mother uh, was uh, born in New Zealand, and so she uh, came over and received her citizenship, went through classes, had to like, learn history, had to recite certain things, had to you know, like, raise her right hand and commit to being a citizen and supporting the Constitution and all of that. I never did that. I was born here. I've never even thought about my citizenship being in jeopardy. Recognizing that the Roman Empire is mostly not citizens, that most of the people Paul is writing to, if they are citizens, that is a thing 
to be held as honorable and valuable and precious, and it, it distinguishes you from others. In fact, the, the Roman colony in Philippi was given this place of honor because of Augustus Caesar winning a battle there in the plains of Philippi and making it kind of this provincial city and granting citizenship to a lot of the population so that now Roman soldiers would often retire there and all of those citizens would be seen as kind of the upper class with special privileges. In fact, if you're with me in Acts 16, you'll see that the Apostle Paul, as he's ministering there, look down in verse 20. And and you'll start to see this emphasis of citizenship matter. Verse 20, when they had brought them to the magistrate, that's the Apostle Paul and Silas, these men are Jews, they say. They're disturbing the city. And they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as what? As Romans. They're not behaving appropriately. They They are acting in ways and doing things in ways that call us to be unfaithful to Roma. And we are not okay with this. It's unacceptable for us to practice these things. So the crowd joined in attacking Paul and his collaborators. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. We don't need to walk through the whole story how the Lord rescues them through an earthquake. How Paul ministers to and gives the gospel to the jailer who then trusts the Lord as Savior. But look down with me in verse 35. After all of that happens, the next day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. Well, why? Well, because they found out they're citizens. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are, catch this, Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. Now, you may not catch the distinction here, but all of a sudden, these politicians know they're in hot water. What have they done to the apostle and his friends? They've beaten them without trial. They've arrested them without trial. They have thrown them in jail and confined them without trial. The magistrates did not come upon a horde of people and be like, oh, uh, okay, get their rabble-rousers and put them in jail. They actually did the sentence. They said, beat them. They took their garments off of them so they could get beaten. Then they threw them into jail. This is all the magistrates doing this. Then when they find out they're Roman citizens, they go, "Uh uh-oh. Now, catch the gap. They were fully justified in their rights to publicly beat and imprison people who are not citizens. Right? They're, they're, they are not ashamed they beat an innocent man. They're ashamed they beat a citizen who didn't have a trial. You'll see this later. I believe it's chapter 23, the end of chapter 22, chapter 23, where I think it's the consul who's dealing with Paul, finds out he's a citizen, and he's in, he's in custody and requires the, 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 um, uh, the, the bindings to be taken off of him lest he be binding a Roman citizen without trial. He's been arrested already for for doing this stuff. And even there, under arrest, the consul's like, take those bindings off of him. He's a citizen, and he has not been convicted yet. Citizens had massive right 
in the legal world of the Roman government to trial and to care and to protections. Again, think about the type of world who beats people without trial just because they're not good Romans. And they don't have citizenship protecting them. I mean, can you imagine living in a world where it's like, you know what, we are just going to, we are not going to give blonde people rights. If you're blonde, we don't care. If we, if we don't think you're living up to our standard, we'll just beat you. I mean, citizenship is relatively arbitrary, isn't it? It's just a thing. But the expectation here for the Romans is that it brought about a certain type of life that they're very proud of, grants certain rights and protections for which the average person could not attain without massive sons of money or birthright. Guess who's very proud of their citizenship? These Philippians. They're proud of their Romanesque virtues. They're proud of their earned status as citizens of the empire of Rome. They are loyal subjects to Caesar, and God redeems them and says, you are proud of your Roman citizenship. There is a better, more life-transforming, more safe citizenship that I'm granting you. You are now a citizen of heaven. Again, I think the implications for the Philippians would crash on them with a weight that we don't experience. They beat and imprisoned Paul for teaching people a way that was not Roman. And then again, you see the flip side, how, how much goodness there was in being a citizen. So we come back to the letter to the Philippians, and Paul has the audacity to tell them, live like citizens. Live like citizens. He is challenging their loyalty. He is challenging how they identify their safety and whom they trust in. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 20. And we're going to go back a little bit, but I want you to see in verse 20 what he's saying. This is why the, the Reader's Version in the NIV puts that citizens of heaven in, in that previous chapter. If you look down in 320, he says, Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Now contrast that. Just go back just one phrase. They, that is those who don't have citizenship in heaven, set their mind on earthly things. So he's making a contrast throughout this letter, I think, that there is something distinctly important about how we think about who we are and how we should then live that is anchored to this concept of citizenship. So what is citizenship? Well, I mentioned before, my mom immigrated. She was a Kiwi, born in New Zealand. And so when she immigrated, she embraced the government, the civics, the society of the United States of America. She had to pass like a history test. She had to pass a government test. And then she had to make an oath of loyalty in order to be part of this country. The Apostle Paul is expressing the same thing. That is, there is a new loyalty demanded of followers of Jesus Christ. 
only this, live worthy as citizens of heaven. I didn't mention it before, but that Greek word that he uses to describe a citizen, the first five letters are the same five letters of politics. It's uh, it's, um, politituomai, political is where we get, or politics, or polity in the church, how it's church governed. It's citizenship. A new loyalty, a new politic, a new rule, and a new ruler. All of this is to overwhelm the Roman and reformat their thinking, their values, their culture, their ethics, so that now they view themselves as a citizen of heaven. They are not to walk like the unbeliever walks, who's an enemy of the cross of Christ. Rather, they're not to set their minds on earthly things. They are to consider themselves as citizens of heaven. John might say it this way, this world is passing away and all that is in it. So what do we do? The person who does the will of God is the one who lives forever. 1 John 2 says, Scripture's great concern for these believers in Philippians and for us today is that we would recognize that we are called to think about ourselves as having a new loyalty and a new destination. Colossians would say it this way. Seek those things that are above, where Christ sits, because your life is hidden with Christ. Now, here's, here's the logic of Colossians, and it's the same thought here as in Philippians. Where is your life? It's with Christ. The fact that it's hidden is because we all look like we're earthlings. Right? Where are you living right now? I know some of you are thinking Bakersfield. I think the point would be earth, not heaven. Right? Where, where are you truly? God says heaven. You are with Christ. You are in Christ. You are united with him. Right? You are with Christ. Therefore, do what? Live like it. Live like you're with Christ. I, I have not had this experience. My wife is, is much more attuned to where I'm at in my life than, than I think some people, or especially uh, girlfriends, can be. But I want you to imagine with me that a young man who is an avid fan of football takes his girlfriend to a Rams game. He's sitting there watching the Rams game, and his team throws an interception. I know, this is just imagining right now. Some of you guys, are your heart's already like disturbed because the Rams throwing an interception is a problem. And, and the girlfriend next to him begins cheering. Now, this poor guy is disturbed. This girl is his girlfriend, and she's cheering, and the Rams just threw an interception. He's like, why are you cheering? This is bad. He's like, oh, I thought something good happened. Everyone was excited. Like, they're excited as in fervent. They're really not happy, though. This is not a good thing. The reason I can say that illustration is that's how my mom cheered. We were avid Packer fans, and I can remember times where like, something bad would happen. And my mom would cheer, and then she'd realize she's the only one cheering. But she knew something big happened. We are so intuitively connected to things like sports that if you're an avid fan, you don't even think about getting that wrong. 
You just know where your values are, and you interpret the game, and your heart soars or crashes with the events on the field. But somebody's kind of relatively clueless, but wants to be part of the game. We'll celebrate at the worst times and celebrate the wrong things or not even understand. I can remember my mom cheering when a punt happened. I was like, why are you cheering? Oh, I thought it was an interception. Was it an interception? No, no, it wasn't an interception. The other team punted the ball. They didn't catch it from a quarterback. Like, oh, okay, okay. It, like, we'd move on. That was constant. It was so sweet for my mom because she just wanted to be part of the family. She just did not get football. Paul's concern is that the Philippians are somewhat like my mother. They're living in a Christian context. They want to be part of the context, but their values, their, the things they celebrate, the things they engage in, they're thoughtlessly connecting and celebrating and doing the wrong things. And it's possible that there's someone in this church here who's wearing the Christian jersey, but actually their loyalties have not changed. Their citizenship that guarantees that their existence in heaven is so secure that when they die and get to heaven, it did not get more secure. Right? Like, you are not more secure when you get to heaven than you are today if you're a Christian. That's how incredibly secure you are if you are saved. You cannot get unsaved. But it's possible there's someone in this room who's kind of wearing the jersey, but your heart, your faith, and actually your status is not one of a true, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And you'll feel the disconnect. We sing a hymn, and your entire evaluation of the song we sung is how much it pleases you. Not its rich theology, not the way it challenges your thoughts about hoping in Christ, not the way it praises our Lord for his goodness and his saving power and his grace to us, your measure is, did I like it? Only this. Live as a citizen of heaven. Paul begins his call to the Philippians by commanding them to orient their thinking to their new status. They have been made citizens of heaven, they are now considered part of God's domain that he has made for his son to rule as king. As people of this new realm, they obey its laws, its society, and social rules they follow as, his king, or as their king. They are loyal to Christ alone, and they walk in the ethics of it. So, so let's just clarify for, for our minds. Paul starts with a command. This is not optional for any Christian in this room. This is not optional for any of us. You must walk and live and behave as though a citizen of God's eternal heaven. You must. Well, this brings up a second question that I think the Paul, that the Paul, that the Paul answers for us. The Apostle Paul answers for us. And that is, what does that look like? Like, what does that actually mean in everyday life? So there's this command, do this. We all should be going... Do what? What does it look like to be a citizen? How, how do I do that command? Well, he explains to us, maybe I could say it this way, we start with the command, now we have the constitution. 
Now we have this document that we need to understand so we can live like it. Here's what he says. Go back to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on what the gospel of Jesus Christ means. But before we get there, that word worthy, that always flags me. Because there's multiple times in Scripture where he uses that word worthy. For instance, in Ephesians 4, he tells us that, that we need to live worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Uh, 1 Thessalonians similarly says that, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of God. I want you just to think about that for a minute. Walk or live worthy of God. That feels an impossible task. Right? Like, who would claim, yeah, I am living a lifestyle that's worthy of God? I just like, feel like that person's a liar. If they say that, they're lying. So, so I, I, I want to be careful that what we don't say is an impossible goal that leaves us all defeated. I don't think that's the apostle's point. I think he's, his point is this. It's fitting. Like a hand fits in a glove. It's appropriate to so the God who calls us and saves us, Paul would tell us in 1 Thessalonians, our lives are to be fitting with the character, the person, and the work of God. But we're coming to a passage where he actually says it a little bit differently, so I think it's worthwhile to recognize what he's doing here. Our life is to be fitting with the gospel of Christ, appropriate to responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So so. The citizen of heaven takes his life and shapes it so that he is less defined by his United States citizenship, he's less def defined by his sports hobbies, and he is more defined by what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, it says. It's the gospel that is our constitution. Now, I want you to look at that phrase, gospel of Christ. What does gospel of Christ mean? That's kind of a funny one, isn't it? Have you ever heard the phrase gospel of Christ before? And I, I could ask you what that means to you, but honestly, I don't, I don't think that's the right way for us to interpret a text. I think the question is to ask what the text means by it and what should we think then when we read it. So it's, here's what it doesn't mean. If I were to say, like, here's a jar of glass. Let me ask you a question. Is the jar filled with glass or is the jar made of glass? Now, if I said this is a jar of water, you would all not think the jar was made of water. You'd all recognize that the jar had in it water. Its content was water. Here's the point of, of this phrase here. It's the gospel whose content is, is what? Is Christ. That's the point. It's not that Christ is the owner of the message. It's not that he's the originator of the message, although both of those things, I guess, are relatively true. The point is that this is the good news, and the content of the good news is Christ. Maybe we could just simply say it this way. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Right? He is the gospel. We get this wrong. I was just in a meeting with pastors the other day, and this was brought up by Ian Hamilton. I thought it was a really good point, so I'm just going to steal it. Uh, we often separate the benefits from Jesus. That is, we talk about salvation, we say, do you want to not go to hell? 
No one who understands hell is like, oh, no, I'm cool going there. No one. And, and so we, we tell someone like, hey, do you want to miss out on eternal torture? Like, yeah, I would rather not do that. Okay, do this. Well, where's Jesus? Yeah. And, and we take and we divide out blessing from Christ. And, and the way we do that is we take doctrine and we depersonalize it. Listen, doctrine describes the beauty of Christ. So we can, we can expound forgiveness. What makes forgiveness beautiful? Let me ask you, have you ever been deeply, deeply, deeply wounded? Have you ever? Have you, have you ever been hurt so much so that you are sad and crying for days? Not like nonstop. I mean, you stop when people are around or you're eating food. But you know what I'm saying. Like, you're deeply wounded. And then the person who did that to you says something like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Ever been in that moment where they don't seem to understand the massive hurt that they've piled onto your plate, and with a few glib words, they're kind of like, yeah, you okay with that? Ever been there? Where you want to make them know and feel and experience the time in that pain that you've experienced before you say, I forgive you? Ever been there? So when we offer Jesus Christ's forgiveness without helping them see the heaping plate of torturous hurt we've offered our Savior. When I say torturous hurt, the cross was sheer, unadulterated agony under the wrath of God. And we tell someone that forgiveness is theirs if they simply repeat a prayer. We have done so much disservice to the beauty of forgiveness. The Bible describes our sin as adultery. Now, I think that a lot of people might speak about adultery as in it would be easier to go through the death of a child than experience my spouse cheating on me. Like, adultery is deep, hurtful, and it doesn't just go away with a, hey, please forgive me. Spiritual adultery to our creator who's never done wrong, never failed us, and is constantly good to us is the deepest treachery, the most grievous wickedness we could ever accomplish in all of our existence. We're going to live a billion years. And Jesus Christ, before you were ever born, died so that in the gospel he could offer all sinners who would come to him forgiveness. It's deeply personal for him. He did not die for sins he died for people who are sinners. He died as a consequence of people's sins. I think generally speaking, Jesus Christ did not die for the sins of rocks. I said R-O-C-K-S, not B-R-O-C-K-S, just to be clear. Rocks, generally we don't look at rocks and think, oh, they're just wicked sinners. If I'm mad at a rock, it's usually because someone threw it. Which means my anger should be probably at the thrower. 
not the instrument thrown. So we depersonalize the gospel. Here he says really specifically and really clearly to the Philippians, you have a new ethic. Here's the ethic. It's the good news. But it's not merely just static news. It's not information. It is Jesus and him crucified. It is the Jesus who is the Son of God eternity in eternity, and he comes as human to die for you. It is this who is our Lord of glory. And our, our gospel that teaches us a new way of living is anchored to the person of Christ. To live according to the gospel might be something analogous to just living like Jesus. But it's more than that. It's living as Jesus is revealed in the gospel message. So who is Jesus Christ in the gospel? Well, let's just start with gospel truths and just meditate on this for a little bit. And as we go there, recognize that what he does here is absolutely compelling in its grace. This is why it's worth spending a whole sermon on on, uh, verse 27 alone. He recognizes that the people he's speaking to are already citizens, and then he says, walk worthy of it. Don't miss that theological order. Here's what he's saying. You are already citizens. Now live like it. The command comes after the saving grace of God. Make it say it this way. He starts with what God has done, we might say the indicative, before getting to the commands or the imperatives. You are a citizen, now live up to that status that God has granted you through the the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say this, earn your citizenship. Aren't you thankful? Like, grace is preemptive. He saves us by grace. We do not live and then get saved by grace. We live as sinners and are saved to grace. And, And here's what I mean by that. He now calls us to live on the basis of forgiveness and status already secured and granted through Jesus Christ. He does not ask us to get good, get godly before saving us. Please don't change that order. You you do not earn or maintain citizenship through your goodness. It is a status that will never be taken away. So we we, we start with the, the, I mean, can you see how that's implied here? Let your life be worthy. Live as a citizen in fitting lifestyle with the gospel whose content is Christ himself. That's kind of a marked paraphrase, but I think you get the point. The declarations of what Christ has done for us are always coming before the demands what Christ expects of us. God never expects from us that we become something before his grace will come. Having said that, here's what we know from this context. If you look down to to chapter 2, he starts exegeting the gospel, doesn't he? When did the gospel start? Look at verse 6. He's already told us us to live like the gospel's pattern. Now he's going to explain the gospel pattern. Verse 5, he introduces it. Verse 6, he begins explaining it. Of Jesus Christ, he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage. 
he starts explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus lived as a human and he was perfectly righteous in all of his life. We believe that. We believe that Jesus died under God's penalty for sins that all the believers of all the ages have ever or will ever in the future commit. We believe that Jesus was resurrected to life because he has fully paid the penalty of all of those sins so that his resurrection proves not one of those sins has yet to be fully paid for. We believe that Jesus Christ returning again will restore us and this earth to pristine condition in his new kingdom. We believe that sin is evil that robs us of joy, that God is rescuing us from the evil that drives us from him and unto his sweet fellowship. We believe that God speaks to us through the scriptures and that he cares about us and our lives and he works into us a joy, a strength, a love, a Christ-likeness, and a grace so that we can obey by his power. All of these are implied in the gospel. So I, I repeat a question I asked earlier, are you a citizen of heaven? Do you believe this gospel? I think because, because you're here in this room, most of you are wearing the jersey. My question is, does your head and your heart already truly embrace this gospel message? Do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? Are you fully devoted to the person of Christ? Do you know that your name is written in the book of life? Do you know that Jesus loves you forever and has redeemed you forever? And if so, live like a citizen. Live like Jesus Christ has lived in the gospel. So let's continue considering the gospel. Jesus gave up his prerogatives. Therefore, we must... I hope you're all thinking, this is so simple, Mark. We must give up our prerogatives. In our nation of rights and demands and people not taking from us what they have no right to take from us, our Savior gave up his rights. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down willingly. Jesus Christ gave up what you could never give up. He laid aside the treasures and the glories and the prerogatives of heaven so that he could be a servant to his creatures. Those created in his image, but his creatures. I was meditating on the humility of Christ. Can you just imagine Jesus as like an 11-year-old boy in one of those moments when boys are boys and bragging about being manly? Look how far I can throw this rock. I bet you can't throw it far, Jesus. You're a pansy. I just want you to imagine that for a moment, the humility of Jesus in that moment. Because you've got to know stuff like that happened to him. Can you imagine thinking, I made the rock? <laughs> like... And not saying it. But then you didn't just make the rock. You made the gravity that pulls the rock back down to earth. And you made the boy who is bragging over you about how much stronger he is than you. Can you imagine the grace to just shut your mouth? Can you imagine being rebuked and disciplined for something your brother didn't do or did do? Can you imagine the humility of the Son of God, fully aware of being dependent on a mom and a dad who are sinners, graciously responding to their sin. Jesus Christ gave up his prerogatives. Can you just meditate on the sweetness of Christ? He 
He's incredible. He's amazing. He's our sweet Savior, and he loves you. He gave up his prerogatives. He didn't just do that. He obeyed the Father. Obedience is so ugly. And I don't mean that actually obedience is ugly, but our attitude towards it is. Often we use words like legalism to minimize the requirements of obedience. We feel like obedience is a commitment to joyless drudgery. Well, it's because obedience often requires of us things we do not particularly enjoy in the moment. I think Christ experienced that, didn't he? He's in the garden. He is not excited about the prospect of the cost of obedience. That's why he prays, Father, if it's, if it's possible, take this thing that you're commanding me to do away from me. Because the prospect of obedience at times requires of us something incredibly expensive or painful. But generally speaking, obedience is not intended to lead us to pain, but to godliness, which is the place in which true happiness resides. And we will know that in heaven, but on this earth, in a sin-cursed world, oftentimes godliness costs us something, which is why he will just in a few verses say something like this. God gave us this grace not only to believe on him, but to suffer. So sometimes obedience does cost us suffering. But we have turned this into an ugly word that's equal to obedience. But if we look down in chapter 2 again, look at what Jesus does. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of man, excuse me, slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So if I'm going to truly pursue the gospel ethos of a citizen, I do not think I'm humble unless I'm obedient. And I pursue humility, not by self-effacing statements of like, I'm just a loser. I pursue humility by committing myself to obey regardless of the cost. Regardless of the challenge. Regardless of where Christ points his finger and says, go. Obedience is humility. Here's Here's what 1 John says. This is love for God to keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Part of humility is not looking at God's commands as onerous or heavy, but actually the pathway to joy. Jesus is obedient, therefore we must be obedient. Jesus became a slave, therefore we must view ourselves and act out the heart of a slave. You know what slaves say when people tell them to do stuff? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. That's what I tell my kids to tell me. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Didn't your parents teach you? When I tell you to do something, you say, yes. You know what slaves say? Yes. You know what we say? I'll pray about it. You know what that's code for? Not yet. Which is code for, I'm really hoping I can find a way to not do it and still not think I'm disobeying. Said we, we obey because we are in fact slaves not merely to God but to his people, to, the, to the, the needy around us. Jesus Christ did not come as king, but he made himself a slave and he served the people he came among. Can you imagine serving Judas? 
Have you ever thought of the deep condescension of our Lord to serve Judas? Jesus serves. He served the Pharisees when he preached to them and with them. When they, when they came to him with sincerity, like Nicodemus, he shared with them the gospel of grace. When they stood as hard people against the gospel of grace, he preached to them grace. When he was on the cross getting killed by them, he asked the Father to forgive them in grace. Can you imagine the sweet service of our Lord to the people who are murdering to him, that on the cross he pleads for the Father to not hold this against them, but to forgive them. What a servant. He is obedient to the extent of dying. Therefore, I must not only be willing to die, I must be willing to actually die. And here's what I mean by that. There are two ways in which I think I must die. Jesus says I must die daily to follow him. Get up on my cross and die daily. Not only that, I think sometimes we're just theoretical Christians. Well, if Jesus ever called me to like get burned at the stake, I guess I'd do that. But coming to Sunday morning at 9 a.m., that's way too much. Like, are you willing to die daily to yourself and, and be willing to go to a country where they might kill you for your faith? Are you willing to die to the comforts of life for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to die to your language and go learn another and live in a foreign country and never speak English again for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to work hard and spend eight hours of prep just to teach a bunch of four-year-olds the gospel in our church? Are you willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. This is gospel living. This is what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. It means that your whole life is turned to recognize the status of a heavenly citizen has got to own your soul and your vision and your dreams and your joys and your passions and your sorrows and your prayers. Heaven owns me. Well, how do I live? Like Jesus. Why? Because heaven owned him. I mean, this is what Hebrews tells us in the middle of suffering, that Jesus did not consider the cross too expensive. He despised, he undervalued the pain because he overvalued the joy set before him. And when I mean under and over, I mean he minimized the cost. The cost was nothing compared to the greatness and the sweetness of the joy. It's like someone offering you a brand new 2000. 23 model car for a dollar. You couldn't get the dollar out of your pocket fast enough to own that car. Theoretically, that's Jesus. Compared to the glory in store for him, he could not get to the cross fast enough because of the joy in store for his obedience. Jesus forgives despite the cost. He was forgive no matter how deeply wounded, no matter how serious their sin, no matter how repetitive their failures, we must forgive. It is ungodly for us to withhold forgiveness for any reason. Particularly when we are confident that they will sin again. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ did not forgive you if you would sin again? Just call it. Game over. We lose. How many times have you asked God for forgiveness in all sincerity and sinned again? Shortly. And so Peter has like, really, do we have to keep forgiving? And Jesus says, yeah, like 70 times 7. 
We do not get to measure sincerity or repentance when someone asks and confesses their sin to us. We must forgive or we are not living like a citizen of heaven. To withhold forgiveness is wicked. So please never withhold forgiveness from another. For those of you who, like me, struggle with boldness, often we withhold forgiveness simply by not telling someone else they've sinned against us. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ died on the cross and never told us about it? How wicked we would still be. There is no compulsion for him to tell us. But he tells us, so what do you think you should do when someone sinned against you? You gotta talk to him. Sometimes it's easier for me to just let it go. Like I, I don't like telling people they've done bad things. I'd rather they like me and not have to deal with that awkward conversation. That's super unloving of them and loving of myself, which is code word for selfish. Sometimes we withhold forgiveness by failing to let someone fix it, or we require that they have uh, somehow follow the stipulations we give. They must repay it. They must fix it. They must publicly acknowledge it. They must show us by faithful behavior that they really mean sincere repentance. These things are all wicked additions that God would never put on us, or we rob the gospel of the word grace. Can you imagine if Jesus said, no, Mark, if, if you are faithful for a year, then I'll forgive you. I have no capacity before forgiveness to live like a citizen of heaven. If there was any condition as a prerequisite for me to get saved, I am damned. Let me just encourage all of you, whether it's in your marriages or with your children, please do not require a prelude before you say I forgive you or you are preaching a false gospel to your children. The gospel of grace offers without precondition full, deep, sweet forgiveness. And the all-knowing Jesus knows you're going to sin again in the next moment. That is so compelling. Our forgiveness needs to be rich and deep. Sincere. Jesus hates sin. So much so that he died in the battle against it. I can barely pray against mine. Engage the battle against sin like your life depends on it because Jesus' life was given in the battle against it. Jesus trusted the Father's call in his life despite the deep, dark, painful valley it took him through. Therefore, when God calls us to deep and dark valleys, whether they're valleys of personal health, dark places of mistreatment, personal anguish and battles against sin, damages within our marriage, calls to suffer, calls to go to the foreign mission field, calls to serve in ministries for which we do not feel adequate, We're, no matter what God calls us to, God often calls us to dark and deep valleys. And Jesus shows us God is worth walking through those valleys to please. God is worth trusting. He calls us to hard places. He does not call us to perfect children, perfect marriages in a perfect society that acknowledges our perfection. None of that is true. And for his glory, he's called you to hard children, hard marriages, hard jobs in a culture that doesn't love him. Let me ask you, do you think were we to make you God for the day that you would change it? Well, if we didn't also give you wisdom, we would see you change it. Do you know that God is all wise? 
Do you know he loves you enough that Jesus Christ died on behalf of the sins of his people? Do you think God is calling you to the hard life, the hard marriage, the hard kids, the hard culture, the hard work because he doesn't love you enough? Or perhaps he's made a mistake and forgotten about his wisdom and not used it for you. We know these things are true. And yet we struggle with walking these hard paths because we don't like hard paths. And yet, if we had all of the wisdom and all of the grace and we were God, we would put ourselves on the same exact path. So trust him. He has never called you to anything bad for you if you are his. Trust him. Jesus did. One of the most compelling verses is in 1 Peter 2, where Jesus is suffering unjustly, Peter describes. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He was suffering unjustly. So who does he trust? Not the circumstances, not the moment, not the people hurting him, not, his, not even like doing his own response. He was quiet. He let this happen because he trusted the just judge. He trusted. You and I are called to the same pattern. The next several weeks, we have the privilege of just saturating ourselves and saturating our hearts and minds and our thoughts with who Christ is as we walk through Philippians. There could not be a sweeter task ahead of us for the Christian. Let me repeat the admonitions of this little line. Only this. Live worthy of your heavenly citizenship, patterned after the good news, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our Savior. Father, help us to be more like him. The gospel is the greatest exposition of the character and the glories of our Savior that has ever been or could ever be given. No mere sermon, no mere mortal could ever say it all. Lord, I pray that our church, those that are here this morning, would be captivated by the glories and the will of Christ, that they might be redeemed from their sin that they might be sanctified to be more like Jesus Christ. Father, would you please forgive us for living like citizens of this earth, living for the here and now, living for the temporary joys and pleasures, living for our own pride and living for our own financial gain, living for our own comfort. Father, all of these are expendables that should be laid down before your will. And if you take them from us, Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, help us to live like Jesus Christ would live were he in our place. Help us to please him in all these things. Help us to pray for his pleasure and glory. Help us to speak to others for the pleasure of Christ. Guard our thoughts so that we would not sin even in our thinking, but that our thoughts would be like Christ's thoughts were he to be interacting with others in our place. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we truly value and treasure where our eternal citizenship has now been secured. We are just as much a citizen of heaven today 
as we will be in the future when we are physically present there. Lord, by faith we know this to be true. So strengthen our faith that our resolve and our commitments and our joys and our passions would be directed to live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.